0: Today we finish up our series on miracles from the Gospel of John. Uh, next week we start a new series um, called The Godhead. Uh, I know that sounds a little intimidating, but we're simply going to explore the mystery of the Trinity and then the, the nature and the character of God. Uh, if you haven't picked up your Bible reading plan yet for that series, make sure you do uh, as you leave today, or you can simply go to our website and download it from there. Do you ever wonder um, why some people seem to have miracles in their lives and, and others don't? And maybe you've even been tempted to think from time to time, you know, I, I must be missing something. I, I, I seem to be spiritually uh, deficient. Well, the disciples wondered the same thing. One day Jesus and his disciples are out for a walk and they pass a a, a blind man and the disciples ask Jesus a theological question. Rabbi, who sinned, uh, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, the, the underlying assumption here was that sin had caused this man's illness. That was kind of a given. And they simply want to know whose sin was responsible. Uh, Was it this man or was it perhaps his parents that this happened to him? Now I know that sounds kind of strange, but back in those days uh, there were some schools of thought that you could actually sin while you were in the womb. So maybe he had done something before he was born. Anyhow, that's the question. Was he blind because of somebody's sin? Jesus responds, neither, neither this man's nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. We know that. I mean, bad things happen because we live in a fallen imperfect world where babies are are born with challenges, where people get cancer and have car accidents. Sure, there are instances where our, our sin directly causes our illness, disease, and even death. Uh, bad things happen sometimes because of something that I have done, because of, of something somebody else has done. But most of the illnesses, most of the diseases, most of the, of the time, our death is not the result of something we have done directly. It's not, there's not this nice, uh, neat, particular cause and effect. And so Jesus declares... That this man's blindness has nothing to do with sin. But, he says, that so the work of God might be displayed in his life. God was going to use this blindness to do something great that would make a a difference, not only in his life, but in the lives of his community. Verse 6 says this, after saying this, Jesus spit on the ground. This may be one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Now, I can tell you that if Jesus had done that in the presence of my wife, she would have chewed him out. She'd have something to say. But, you know, I, I think that if you need biblical evidence, it's okay to spit. Guys, there it is. Jesus did it. We can too. And he takes the spit and the dirt He makes a little mud pie with it, and what does he do? He rubs it into the man's eyes. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, he instructs him. So the man went, he washed, and he came home seeing. Now, little did he anticipate the effect it would have on his community. First of all, his neighbors get into a discussion. Is this Ralph, the blind guy? Oh, yeah, say some. No way, say others. It just looks like Ralph. Ralph says, hey, hey, it's me. (laughs) How did this happen to you? I don't know. Some guy named Jesus. See, people notice change. When a blind man regains his sight, people notice that. When a lame man walks, it attracts attention. When a crotchety, mean-spirited person becomes loving, gracious, and kind, people Notice, they become curious. When a person without hope suddenly becomes hopeful, people want to know why. It's a natural reaction to change. Someone's life is transformed and we notice, we become curious and and we want to know why, what caused the change. But it's not just the neighbors who are curious. Uh, The religious leaders are curious too. Now, you would think they would be excited, you know, rejoicing with this guy over his miracle. Isn't God good? What's it like for the first time in your life to be able to see? But they are not. They're furious because Jesus broke one of their rules. You're not supposed to, to heal people on the Sabbath. And so they start to interrogate the blind man. You see, they've already made up their mind about Jesus The the miracle is irrelevant. They just need proof that Jesus is a bad man. And so they ask the formerly blind man what he thinks, and his logic is impeccable. Jesus performed a miracle. Miracles are from God, therefore Jesus is from God. But the religious guys, they have a, a different logic, and it goes like this. Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath. That's against our rules Jesus is therefore a rule breaker. Therefore, Jesus is bad. He's a sinner. Next, they go to his parents. Is this your son, Ralph? Was he born blind? And how can he now see? And they respond, well, we know this is our son, We know that he was born blind, but but how he sees now, we don't know. But they'd already heard. They were terrified that they were going to be ostracized from their community, and so they didn't want to get into this argument. There was cancel culture even back then, wasn't there? So they go back to the formerly blind man. But he won't cooperate, and so they hammer him. Admit it, Jesus is a sinner. Now listen to the man's response in verse 25. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know, but what I know is this, is that I was blind and now I see. His life has changed. He didn't try to have a debate with the Pharisees. Look, he says, I, I've never been to seminary. I, I can't de- debate ecclesiology or eschatology with you. I've never taken classes in, in hermeneutics or, or in homiletics. He said, I, I don't know about world religions. I don't know the difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and toilet paper rolls. But what I do know is this, that I was blind, and now I see. All I know is what happened to me. Well, the religious leaders get frustrated because there's no rebuttal. How do you respond? How do you challenge that? How do you argue with that? Verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as far as this fellow Jesus, we don't even know where he comes from. And this ordinary, uneducated, untrained, former, former beggar, this says a profoundly logical statement. Now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We well, you know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. And nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. <laughs> Irrefutable logic. So, how do the religious leaders take it? You were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw them out. They lost, and they knew it. But they were the guys in power, they were the ones in control. And they didn't want to believe in Jesus. You know, it's always easier to doubt than it is to believe. Because if they believe, their life is going to have to change. And I think that's why a lot of us prefer to hold on to our doubts. And so Jesus goes looking for the blind man. After he gets word that he's been tossed out of the community, out of the synagogue. Verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of, in the son of Man? Now remember, the the blind man had never seen Jesus. He says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? You're speaking to him. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So the point here is obvious that the gospel writer is making That not only has there been a a physical healing in this man's life, there has been a a spiritual healing as well. He's experienced that new birth that Jesus talked about with a religious leader, Nicodemus, Nicodemus in in chapter 3. And it's happened to a very ordinary, poor, uneducated, disabled person. And did you notice how Jesus did it? what he used for this miracle. Mud, spit, ordinary water. You can't get much more earthy and ordinary than that. And yet, for some reason, that seems to be the way that God likes to operate in our world. Well, the Reverend John Wesley was born June 17th, 1703, the 15th of 19 children, born to the Reverend Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Now, Wesley was, uh, Samuel was not well liked because of his political leanings. Imagine that. And so his neighbor set fire to his house, to the parsonage. And you thought you had troublesome neighbors. Uh, so young John almost died in the fire, but they formed a human ladder up to the second floor and they snatched him out of the window just as the, first, or the second level of the house crashed to the ground. And it made his mother wonder if perhaps God hadn't appointed young John for some special purpose. Well, he went on to graduate from Oxford University and became a priest in the Church of England Beginning in 1729, he began to participate in this group called the Holy Club. It was simply a a religious study group of of Oxford students and, and graduates organized by his younger brother, Charles, also a priest in the Church of England. But critics ridiculed the Methodists, as they called them, because of their methodical way of living out their Christian life turning point in Wesley's life followed a disastrous two-year missionary trip to Savannah, Georgia, in which he had to to leave Savannah under the cover of, of darkness for fear he might be tarred and feathered by the colonists. And he came home feeling like a huge failure. Depression set in, and he began to doubt if he was even a Christian. A couple months later, in May 1738, Wesley attended a Bible study on Altersgate Street in London, and while listening to the reading of, of Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the book of Romans, he heard an explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith. And this is what he wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed, and I felt that I did trust in Christ Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins Just a few months later one of his friends George Whitfield who was a now rising evangelist both in England and America invited him to come to Bristol and to preach in an open field to the coal miners who were there Now, at that point, Wesley felt that preaching outside the walls of a church might be a sin. But he did it anyhow. And the response of the coal miners to his message was overwhelming. And so he began to preach often to working-class people who found little welcome in established churches. And the Methodist revival began. And it soon spread to Wales and, and then to Ireland and then to Scotland and then on to America. Until after the revolution, Wesley decided it was time for a new church, and the Methodist Episcopal Church in the U.S. was born in Baltimore, Maryland, on December 24, 1784. It was called the Christmas Conference, and two preachers, Francis Asbury and Thomas Coke, were set apart to be leaders in the new movement in America. You see, America was growing, and so did the church. And settlers began to move into Ohio as peace with Native Americans was made. And and many of those settlers happened to be Methodist, and that included Anderson Township. In 1797, Francis McCormick, a pioneer and a Methodist preacher, came up from Virginia and preached in the little village of Milford, Ohio, and started the very first Methodist class meeting. Uh, a class meeting was kind of like our life groups. They, they met for spiritual growth and, and for fellowship. A couple years later, in 1810, McCormick bought 600 acres in, in Anderson Township. And on part of his farm at the corner of, of Salem and Sutton, he built a small church. And he named it Salem Methodist Episcopal Church. You can see his tombstone in the cemetery beside the church right now today. Now, that was the same year that Bishop Asbury came to our community. Now, Asbury was born in England into a, a poor working class family in a rough neighborhood. he he was beaten so badly by his uh, school teacher that he dropped out of school at the age of 12. But at the age of 15, he heard uh, a sermon by a Methodist preacher by the name of Mr. Mather, and he surrendered his life to Christ. And a few years later, at the age of 18, he was licensed to preach himself as a Methodist preacher. At the age of 26, he felt God was calling him to go to America And so when Wesley asked for volunteers, Asbury came forward, and he wrote in his diary, Why am I going to this new world? Is it for honor, or is it for money? No, I am going to live to God, and to bring others to do so. And nobody there that day would have expected this ordinary man to do anything extraordinary but how wrong they were. Asbury rode and preached all across the nation, some 270,000 miles he rode on horseback. He preached some 16,000 sermons. And finally, his travels led him around 1809 down the Little Miami River, where he preached in Milford, and then later on to the growing uh, town of Cincinnati. And he led the Methodist church for some 36 years until he died in 1816. And during his time as bishop, Methodism grew from the smallest denomination in America to the largest. Now, Asbury was uneducated, a surprisingly poor preacher. People complained that they found his sermons hard to follow. And yet God used this ordinary man to lead many people to faith in Christ. And he was so well known and so beloved in our country, they built a statue to him in Washington, D.C. on 16th Street. It's still there to this day. Well, a couple years later, the township began to establish and build public schools. And one of those schools was built on 8 Mile Road about a half mile south of Beechmont. And for the first few years, it was used as a meeting place for the Methodist Society in Anderson Township. Now, a society is what Methodists used to call a church. Here's a picture of that church and schoolhouse. In 1825, five years later, they chartered and became known as the Asbury Methodist Episcopal Church, named after their beloved bishop. A few years later, in 1835, they purchased land, the corner of what was then known as Five Mile Road and Mulberry Ridge. Today, Five Mile is called Forest, and Mulberry is called Asbury. And there they built their first church. There's a picture. And that's my horse and buggy right there onto the side. But, uh, but by 1920, they had outgrown the, the one-room building, so they bought the substation of the Interurban Traction Line. They remodeled it and renamed it, now listen to this, the Forestville Community Methodist Episcopal Church. <laughs> so they just nicknamed it the Powerhouse. It, it, it stood where Arby's stands today, just down the street. But Anderson was growing. When the Beachmont levee and the bridge were built, it opened up Anderson for expansion. Did you know that between 1960 and 1980, the population of Anderson Township doubled to 36,000 people? Farmlands were turned into subdivisions, and our church grew along with it until they outgrew their little powerhouse. And so they organized a building committee with names like C.B. Air and William Judd and Pearl Muchmore, and Gail Owens. And they bought property at the corner of Forest in Beachmont, and they began to build their very first unit, what we call Kids Rock, in 1953. And they built a parsonage. In 1950, or 1959, they built this room here, our, our sanctuary. And then they changed the name once again to Anderson Hills Community Methodist Church. They added more classrooms for the children. In 1990, they built the adult classrooms and our choir suite. And then finally, in the year 2000, they built Fellowship Hall until we look something like this today. We are the fifth largest United Methodist Church in the state of Ohio, and we're in the top 200 in the nation. These men and women who bought this property, had incredible vision, didn't they? We have a great location in the heart of a great community. But I believe the reason that we have grown is because we have stayed focused on our mission. That for 200 years here in Anderson Township, it's still exactly the same as to help people to find Christ and to help them grow in their walk with Jesus. That is the why behind everything that we do. It is the very reason that we exist. You know, right now, there's a lot of bad going on in the world. A pandemic, deep division, social unrest, terrorism, a deadly explosion in Beirut. Earthquakes, wildfires, leaving behind scenes of an apocalypse. There's corruption. There's war. There's poverty. Did you know there's even a plague going, a plague of locusts going on right now in East Africa? What more is 2020 going to bring? And some Christians see this as a sign that the world is coming to an end and that Jesus will soon be returning. But I would like for us to look at this. In another way, what a wonderful time for us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Did you know that tremendous revivals are breaking out all over the world in South America and in Africa? A young or a woman named Heidi Baker and the Iris Movement has planted some 25,000 churches in the nation of Mozambique alone. And it's followed by miracles and healings, works of mercy. Vietnam, China, India, and Iran, closed to the gospel just a few years ago, are now experiencing tremendous revivals, and the church is growing like crazy. God has given you and me the privilege of living at a very unique time in our history. And I think now more than ever, we need to take this opportunity to claim this divine moment in human history and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there are thousands of churches that are dying across America. We close up United Methodist Churches almost every single day. They've stopped growing. They've turned inward. They lost their reason for existence. They lost their focus. They lost their mission. They lost their their purpose to help people find God. I mean, read through the New Testament. Jesus could be found teaching and preaching and healing people, and the apostles did the same. The apostle Paul traveled all over the Roman Empire evangelizing, preaching, and equipping lay people to do ministry. John Wesley and Francis Asbury did the same across America until their dying days. Methodist circuit riders crisscrossed America preaching the gospel, many of them going to an early grave simply to help people to connect with God, and the result of their efforts was a growing church. See, I believe the more that we spend reaching out to our community, the more time we spend sharing our faith, the more we will grow. We have been doing that for 200 years, and we'll keep doing it until the Lord returns. You see, I believe that in 1820, God planted us here for a reason. And we're simply a group of ordinary people who, like the blind man one day, received healing from our blindness. And like him, we can say, I once was blind, but now I see. You see, we think the heroes of the Bible, people like Peter and John and Paul were extraordinary people. Uh, we look at the great Christians of the past like Martin Luther and, 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 and Wesley and Asbury, and we think that somehow that they were different from us. But I think that if we've learned anything from this series on miracles, it's this, that God chooses very ordinary things and, and very ordinary people to do extraordinary supernatural things, that He turned ordinary water into extraordinary wine, That he took five loaves of bread and two little fish and used them to feed 5,000 people. That he took some spit and mud and ordinary water to heal a blind man. God uses ordinary people to accomplish some incredible things. And he takes even our weaknesses and he turns them into strengths. The Apostle Paul even says as much in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. God isn't looking for the smartest person. God's not looking for the most talented person. God's not looking for the best communicators or the best musicians God is simply looking for ordinary people who are willing to surrender their life completely and totally to him. I want to be one of those people. How about you? Let's pray. God, what an incredible thing that you take very ordinary, earthy things of this world and you use them for your purpose. God, we want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of your Jesus movement here on earth. Thank you, God, for the wonderful legacy we have from those faithful men and women who came here 200 years ago And started a little church who just wanted to be faithful and to share the good news of Christ with their neighbors, with their friends, with their family. God, use us and help us to be faithful like them. That for however long it is, God, maybe another 200 years, that this church will continue. This mission, that we'll be faithful to our calling, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.